Good evening. We are glad you're here tonight and appreciate you coming back this evening. We hope and pray that our time together will benefit you. We are grateful for the period of singing that took place this afternoon. And we had a lot of different guys that led singing and they did a great job. And so we commend them and we've got a lot of guys that have talent here and we appreciate that very, very much. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1 in our study tonight. Ephesians chapter 1. We've been looking at key chapters in Scripture. Tonight we focus our attention on Ephesians, the first chapter. Our study tonight, God's amazing plan of redemption. And it is amazing to think that God in heaven created a plan to redeem those of us who belong to the human family. And so in Ephesians chapter 1 tonight, we're going to be thinking about this great, grand, redemptive plan. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul accentuates the church of Christ. In his letter to the church at Colossae, he emphasizes the Christ. And so when you take these two books and blend them together, you learn a lot about Christ and His church and the redemptive plan. In the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, Paul accentuates the blessings of being in Christ. In chapters 4 through 6, he talks about the behavior that we are to demonstrate in Christ. And so tonight, for the purpose of our study, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1 and thinking about God's great redemptive plan. It is amazing. And you remember in the book of Hebrews, the writer asked the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God's salvation is great. And to think that anyone would neglect it, it's just hard to imagine, isn't it? And so in the book of Ephesians, I want to begin tonight by looking at chapter 1 with you. And as we begin our study tonight, I want to talk first and foremost about the redemptive plan of God. And there are really two key thoughts here. Number one, the origination of this plan. And then secondly, the revelation of this plan. And so as we think about the origination of this plan, I like to think about it in these terms. God was the architect of this divine plan. Jesus, however, was the agent that brought this plan to fruition. And Paul makes that abundantly clear in this book. So listen to what he says beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Here we're introduced to the architect of this redemptive plan and the agent by which God consummated it. That's Jesus. And if you take note of the fact, Paul said every spiritual blessing known to man resides in one place. That's in Jesus. And so look at verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, 
having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Paul here, as he outlines the fact that God is the architect of this redemptive plan, to understand that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing, isn't He? So when God created man, He understood that given the possibility of making choices, the freedom of will, as we say, that invariably man would ultimately make the wrong choice, thereby bringing sin into the world, and thus would stand in need of a redemptive plan. And so before God ever laid the foundation of the world, this plan was in place. That's what Paul's saying here. You remember, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said that we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot, without blemish. He said, who verily was foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times for you. There Peter is saying to all of us that God had this plan in place and that Jesus was a part of that plan, wasn't He? And so to understand that when the Apostle Paul says that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, God didn't arbitrarily choose who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost, individually speaking. What God did predetermine is that those who are in Christ, those who respond to heaven's will, then they become the recipients of this great redemptive plan. Matter of fact, in this book, in about verse 13, Paul will say, in whom you also believed, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Those in Ephesus that had the opportunity to hear the gospel, that gospel produced faith, faith led them to obedience. And so God is the architect of the plan. Jesus, however, was the one through whom this plan came to fruition. Now you remember, for example, Jesus said on one occasion, I have come to seek and to save the lost in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It was said of Jesus before He was born into the world that He would save His people from their sins. So when Jesus came to earth, His goal was to fulfill the will of the Heavenly Father. So you can read the book of John, for example. And throughout the Gospel of John, the Apostle relates the fact that everything the Son did was in concert with the Father. In other words, it was in harmony with the Father. He would say, for example, in John chapter 17, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. Well, what work was that? It was redemption. So that's what we're talking about. And then secondly, the revelation of this redemptive plan. Now we can know that there's a God, as we've said before, by looking at the world in which we live. The world lends evidence to a divine creator. But how would we ever know the mind of God separate and apart from revelation? We couldn't, could we? So listen to what Paul says. For example, down in verse, pick up if, if you would in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. And so heaven and earth are on the same page. Well, what about the mystery of this will? A mystery is something that has been concealed. In other words, we don't know the meaning of it. However, Paul said that he had received revelation from God. And based upon that revelation, he came to understand the mystery of God's will. Well, what was that will? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. That's what he would say over in chapter 3. Matter of fact, he talked about how he had received revelation from God. He took that revelation, wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge, listen to him, in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And so God revealed his will. We can go back and look at John 14 through 16 where Jesus talked about the work of the Holy Spirit after he ascended to heaven. And you remember they received the promise of the Father as Jesus had said in Luke 24, verse 49 and following. All right, with that in mind, what about the revelation? What about the revelation of God's redemptive plan? Well, first and foremost, to understand the focal point of revelation is Jesus, isn't it? Everything, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, everything points in the direction of one person, doesn't it? That's Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of man, Moses writes about the promised seed. That's Jesus. In Genesis 12, when he calls upon Abraham to be the father of the Hebrew nation, and when he says that through his seed all nations of the earth will be blessed, that's Jesus. You remember in Galatians chapter 3, when Paul said that those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In that context, he said there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. For you're all one in Christ, and if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So everything is accentuating Jesus. The Lord Jesus would say, John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So he is the focal point of prophecy, but not just the focal point, he is the fulfillment of prophecy. You remember, for example, before Jesus ascended to heaven in Luke 24, when he said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in what? In the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, concerning me. Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And it's amazing to go back and look at all those Old Testament prophecies, over 300 prophecies, and they're all pointing to the coming of the Christ and His kingdom. And what Paul says in the book of Ephesians is that Christ and the church go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. We'll talk about that in just a minute or two. All right, so first of all, we talk about, we stress the redemptive plan of God. But then secondly, the redeeming provisions of God. Paul's going to make it abundantly clear 
that redemption is found in one person in one place. That's in Jesus. He is the only source of our salvation. So pick up with me in verse 7 if you would. In verse 7 Paul said, In Him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption. I said just a minute ago, Jesus is the focal point of prophecy. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. Salvation runs exclusively through Christ. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And to those who would say that Jesus was not divine, that you don't have to be a follower or an adherent of Jesus to be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. No, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Luke said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Do you remember what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9? That Jesus tasted death for every man. That includes us, doesn't it? So when we talk about the greatness, this amazing redemptive story, the amazing redemptive work of Almighty God, to understand God had us in mind when He sent Jesus to the cross. And that Jesus came to this world to suffer, bleed, and die for me, for you, for all people. Listen to what Jesus said, John 3, 16, the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can insert your name there. I could insert my name there. Wasn't it the Apostle Paul who said in Romans chapter 8, If God be for us, who can be against us? And didn't the Apostle Paul also say, He that spared not his own son? Why did he do that? I mean, when you start looking at the catalyst behind the redemptive plan, what was it that motivated God to reach out to the human family through His Son Jesus so that we might be saved? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to what Paul said, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith He loved Listen to what Paul said, wherewith he loved us. Paul came to understand that the love of God, the love of Christ, was inclusive of himself. So when he wrote to the saints in Galatia, those various churches in the region of Galatia, Paul said that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. It's a very personal thing, isn't it? So Paul here emphasizes the person of our salvation. John said, We have seen and testified the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus is in the saving business, isn't He? And the beauty of it is, He has the ability to save any and all if we're willing to come to Him. Now, there's a second thought here. First, we talk about the person of redemption, but secondly, the price of redemption. Don't think for a minute that your salvation was cheap, nor was mine. No, the Bible says, in Him we have redemption, listen to Him, through His blood. It cost Jesus His blood. Do you remember when Jesus instituted His memorial feast as He partook of the Passover with the disciples? And He talked about His body. And He said that 
The unleavened bread would remind disciples of all ages of the body given for us. And so he would say, this do in remembrance of me. But it was Peter who said that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. The Hebrew writer said that he has sanctified us through the offering of his body. So when Jesus went to the cross and when he paid the ultimate price for sin, it included his body, but not just his body, his blood. Now, Peter said that his blood is precious. How, how valuable would you say your child's blood is? For most of us who are parents, we would say that there is nothing, there is nothing comparable to the blood of our children. Why? Because we love them, don't we? It's amazing to just sometimes step back and contemplate the tremendous blessings that we enjoy in this country because men and women literally gave their lives on the battlefield so that we can have opportunities like this to worship God in spirit and in truth, so that we can open the Bible in public, so that we can pray in public. I mean, these are freedoms that we enjoy. Imagine if you can, your child dying on the battlefield. Would that make America more special to you? Wouldn't you be even more incredibly grateful for this country than you already are? Because your child gave his blood, her blood, for freedom. Well, Jesus gave his blood for our freedom. And we can't be liberated from sin without His blood. No, John said, Unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins by His own blood. Our salvation was not cheap. Now, there are folks that sadly want to cheapen Christianity. When you think about the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, and the fact that God sent His Son to die for our sins. And He paid the ultimate price by the giving of His body and blood on Calvary for us. No wonder Paul said, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says something not only to us about the person of redemption, the price of redemption, but I would also include the place of redemption. Paul said, in Him, that's in Christ. There is no other way around salvation. The only place salvation is located is in Christ. That's what he said, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's what Paul said in writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation, listen to him, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Salvation exclusive to Jesus. And it is exclusively in Christ. That means we've got to be in Christ, don't we? So what about His plan of redemption? Is there a plan articulated in Scripture that enlightens us as to how we can benefit 
from the blessings of His blood and His body? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. The Bible is very explicit. The Bible says, number one, salvation is in Christ. And number two, the Bible says, salvation is in the church of Christ. Those two, as I said a moment ago, they go hand in hand. You can't separate them one from another. No more so than you can separate Jesus from His Word. If you want to live for Jesus, you've got to abide in His Word. That's what He said in John 8, 31. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, why do we need to be in Christ? Because that's where salvation is. Now back up and look again at verse 3. In verse 3, listen again to what Paul said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Did you know that some 35 times the expression in Christ or its equivalent is found in this book? Does that not say something about the importance of being in Christ? I mean, if he used the expression over 35 times of being in Christ or being in Him, that says to me there's something special about being in Christ. If there's something special about being in Christ, and Paul said all spiritual blessings are in Christ, then what I need to do is find out how to get into Christ. Well, how do I get into Christ? The Bible says there's only one way to get into Christ Jesus. And that is we're baptized into Christ. Now, we're not talking about baptism alone. But baptism preceded by faith in Jesus as the Son of God. I said a moment ago that there are people today that will negate the importance of coming to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that if we want to go to heaven, we've got to come to the conclusion that He is the divine Son of God. Otherwise, we'll die in our sins. And Jesus said, if you die in your sins, where I am, there you can't come. So we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then we turn from sin through repentance, confessing the name of Christ as the eunuch did, recorded by Luke in Acts 8, verse 37. And then we are immersed or baptized into Christ. It is a burial in water, according to Colossians 2.12. We're buried with Christ in baptism. For what purpose? Well, the Bible says we're buried with Christ in baptism, number one, to be saved, Mark 16, 16. Number two, to enjoy the remission of forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38. To enjoy the washing away of sins, Acts 22.16. That's what the text says. I didn't come up with that on my own. That's what the Bible teaches. So when I obey the gospel, when I'm baptized into Christ, listen to what Paul said, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Well, what's so important about being baptized into the death of Jesus? Didn't Jesus shed His blood in death, John 19, 34 and 35? If I want the benefits and blessings of His blood, then I've got to go where it was shed, shed in death. So when I'm baptized into Christ, the Bible says I'm also added to the body of Christ. Well, how do I know that? Because on Pentecost Day, when those people responded to the invitation given, 
to repent and be baptized. Luke said in verse 41, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel that day. He went on to say in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So what about being in the church of Christ? Can I be saved outside of Christ and outside the church of Christ? I want you to hear what Paul said in Ephesians 5.23. Paul said he is the Savior of the body. Well, what's the body? Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. The church is His body. So that means if we're in Christ, then we're in the church. The church of Christ. You remember Jesus during His earthly ministry when He talked to Nicodemus on one occasion? And He told Nicodemus, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, we've got to be born again if we want to enter the kingdom. So when we comply with the will of Almighty God, terms set forth by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and other passages, when we comply with those terms, then God puts us in the church, doesn't He? And we enjoy salvation. Can anybody be saved outside of Christ? The answer is no. Can anyone be saved outside the church of Christ? Again, the answer is no. And when I talk about the church of Christ, I'm talking about the church that belongs to Christ. The church that He built, Matthew 16, 18, that He bought with His blood, Acts 20, verse 28, and that belongs to Him, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. That's the church that we can be a member of. That's the only church that we have the right to be a member of. It's the only church authorized in Scripture, isn't it? There's a third thing I want to share with you in our, in our study tonight. First, we talk about this redemptive plan of God. Secondly, the redeeming provisions of God. And then thirdly, the regal power of God. Drop down if you would and note with me verse 19. In verse 19, Paul talks about that which God worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. First, Paul speaks of the coronation of Christ. What do I mean when I talk about the coronation of Christ? When Paul said that God raised His Son from the dead and seated Him at His right hand, Jesus welds authority from the right hand of God. That is a position of honor. Also, it is a position of authority. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter makes the case that God raised up the Christ to sit upon the throne of David. David, as you know, the illustrious king of Israel, probably the greatest king in their history. And he was the king over the United Kingdom, as was Solomon, his son. But the throne that Jesus occupies is not a physical, carnal throne. Now, the apostles, the disciples, those in the first century... They had a lot of misunderstandings about the nature of the kingdom. They thought it was going to be this material, carnal kingdom. And yet the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was spiritual in nature. So when God raised Christ from the dead, and you remember Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection signified Jesus is the Son of God. 
But when he raised Christ, he seated him at the right hand. Jesus today wields all authority in heaven and on earth. How then does he control the church that's on earth? Only way he can, through his word. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, the Hebrew writer talks about the last will and testament of Christ. All he's saying is that Jesus is the testator of this new testament, this new covenant. Jesus talked about that as we noted a moment ago in Matthew chapter 26, instituting the Lord's Supper. But to understand that Jesus has been coronated in heaven. Now there are people today, I heard on the radio this past week, and he's talking about when Jesus comes again and sets up a kingdom here upon this earth and reigns and rules here on earth. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is not coming back to this earth. He is not going to set up a kingdom in Palestine. The Lord Jesus is already on His throne. He is already reigning and ruling, but He's reigning and ruling from heaven. When the Lord Jesus comes, to, comes again, He's not coming to set up shop on planet earth. He's not coming to establish the kingdom, but rather He's coming to deliver the kingdom to God the Father, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Putting an end to all rule, power, and authority. So with that in mind, we talk about the coronation of Christ. But then Paul also mentions the church of Christ. Note if you would verse 22. Well, verse 23. Jesus had been seated at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in, the, in that which is to come. Do you remember Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, and about verse 22, Peter said that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers being made subject to Him. So here's Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. He has established the church, the one body. So listen to Him in verse 22. He put all things under His feet, gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Two things here with regard to the church. Paul says, number one, there's only one body. And number two, there's only one head. Now you can search the scriptures from now till Jesus comes and you will only find one body and one head. Anything more than that is not biblical. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 4, Paul said there is one body and one spirit even as you're called in one hope of your calling. And you remember Paul in Ephesians 5 23 and following said that the church is subject to Christ. In other words, Jesus is the head of the one body, isn't He? And so, here He is sitting at the right hand of God, where He welds all authority, as He said in Matthew 28, 18. And He is controlling His body by what means? By His Word. He does not need anybody on earth functioning on His behalf. Paul said there is only one potentate, only one. There's only one head, there's only one body. You know, a lot of the religious confusion in our world could be cleared up if we would just read what the Bible has to say. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. 
I'm just saying that there are a lot of things that people buy into and practice that when you put it to the test, it's just not in Scripture. Where do you ever read in the New Testament of God legislating authority to any one person to serve as the pontiff on earth? Do you find that in Scripture? I don't find that. And so when we say there's one head and one body, we're just saying what the Bible says. And listen, here's what Peter said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. What are you going to be judged by one day? The last will and testament of Jesus. John said, He saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. These books. This is the book that's going to judge us. And so, if this is the book that's going to judge us, then it says to me, we better make sure that we're living in harmony with this book. So what about you tonight? God's amazing redemptive plan. Where would we be without Jesus? Without hope? Without God? It says to me that God, God thinks we're pretty special. He thinks that we are so special that He made a redemptive plan so that one day we could be with Him forevermore in heaven. Have you obeyed the gospel? Are you a Christian? Are you a New Testament Christian? Have you done what they did in the first century? Believing Jesus to be the Son of God, repenting of sin, confessing the name of Christ, being immersed in water. Have you done that? If you haven't done that, then what would keep you from obeying the gospel tonight? If you're here tonight, and let's just say you are a member of the body of Christ. Listen, once you get into Christ, you will always be in Christ. You might not live like it, but you'll always be in Christ. And so if you're here tonight, for whatever reason you have left the Lord, gone back into the world, the amazing thing about Almighty God is He's willing to forgive. He's willing to take you back, restore your fellowship and all your blessings, and that promise of heaven can be yours again. Won't you come as we stand and sing?